Father, in this arena this morning, gathered with our church family, it is indeed the desire of our hearts that our love would match what we express with our lips, and that Jesus Christ would indeed be the center, and that our hearts would be filled with love for Jesus, the kind of love that is an obedient love, the kind of love that directs us towards your word, the kind of love that casts out all fear. And Father, thank you for the privilege of taking our Bibles now and refreshing ourselves and renewing ourselves, renewing our minds and challenging our hearts with your word to us, that we would be your children, walking in the truth and living it out carefully on a day-to-day basis. We commit this time now, these few minutes, where we open our Bibles and hear the word, take it and use it well for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's um, a very good memory in my mind. Do you know how you have snapshot moments in your mind and there are some moments in time that it's worth revisiting on occasion and one of those occasions in my life was my junior year of Bible college. I was in Beckley, West Virginia at Appalachian Bible College. I had been spending my summers up on the Yukon River working for my uncle who had a, a bush pilot air taxi service there on the Yukon Delta. And one day after lunch, heading up to the post office, it was in the days of snail mail and and nothing was electronic then. It was all real paper mail. The, the post office was a pretty popular place every day. And you made your way there to get your papers and stuff back from your profs. <clears throat> as well as to see if mom and dad sent you any money. <laughs> I went up to the mailbox, opened up the mailbox, pulled out a letter. And it was from my Uncle Bud in Alaska. Opened it up, had a simple note inside. It just said, Vano. They called me Vano up there. <clears throat> said, Vano. Enclosed is a $1,000 check. Go learn how to fly. How fun was that? So I engaged an instructor there at the Beckley Airport and, and uh, really delighted in uh, spending that $1,000. That's all the farther it went. I never completed my private pilot's license work, but I did solo after just a few hours of instruction. But I want to take you in the cockpit of an airplane for just a minute because I... I want you to have a little, a certain mindset as we conclude 1 Timothy this morning. If you've ever been in a small plane before, you know that they have two steering wheels. Think of them as steering wheels. Two sets of brakes and gas pedals. And you sit side by side and it's kind of close. This is a Cessna 172 that I trained in. And unlike an automobile and an airplane, the pilot's in the left-hand seat. And so when you take your instruction, you're in the left-hand seat and And if you say to somebody, are you flying left-hand seat? That means you're the pilot. If you're flying right-hand seat, that means you're the co-pilot. My instructor was a a lady named Penny. She was a rather big girl. And that little 172 was a light little airplane. And she rode in the right-hand seat. And our instruction began. And because I had been around airplanes a lot and flown a lot of hours with my uncle, I picked it up quickly. And after just about five hours of instruction with her in the airplane, touch and goes and practicing with the airplane, Penny looked at me one afternoon when I came in and she said, you're ready to solo. Well, I was 
pretty confident that I could fly this little airplane around the airport and land it again. But I have to tell you, my heart was pounding and my hands were sweating. When I got in that airplane, I pre-flighted on my own. She watched and then she stepped back and I'm in my airplane all by myself and off I go. That airplane came off the ground in a hurry and I had to pay attention to stall horns going off. My hands continued to sweat and I took it around and did a touch and go and landed again successfully. But there is just a funny feeling of flying solo when you're very used to having the instructor right there next to you. I realized that I found a great deal of security with that instructor. I figured that if something went wrong, she'd know what to do and she'd get us down. When I'm by myself, I didn't know. And as you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and we complete the last couple verses, and this is our final message from 1 Timothy For over two years, I've been, most Sundays, asking you to turn to 1 Timothy. And uh, this is it. This is our final message. And, And I want you to realize the weight of the Apostle Paul's instruction to Timothy. Timothy is this young pastor. He's in Ephesus, a church with a great deal of issues. His job is to solve them. And I want you to think about the fact that basically, Timothy's been flying this plane as the pastor of this church, with the Apostle Paul as his instructor. And now the time has come for Timothy to go solo. And in the weight of the Apostle Paul's closing words, you have the implications of all that goes with being in the left-hand seat. Timothy, you're on your own. Timothy, I've instructed you. Timothy, here it is. Go live it out. Be the pastor God called you to be. Help the church grow and be healthy. Represent Christ to a watching world. But Timothy, I'm out of here. You're on your own. You're the solo pilot now. You can only imagine, as Timothy must have finally concluded reading this instruction, the weight of responsibility that he felt. I'm on my own now. I've been instructed. It's time to go solo. Here it is, the final verses. The Apostle Paul has come back to the theme of money. We've talked about that. He's challenged those with wealth and resource in the church to be generous, to let that be a a way for God to use them. And then he concludes very similarly to the way he began the book, reminding Timothy of the importance of standing for the truth. Verse 20, you can feel his emotion Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy. He didn't just say Timothy. He said, oh, Timothy. And I think that Timothy could hear Paul's voice in his mind. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. In the same way that he began in chapter 1, it began with a warning of false teachers, of those who would lead others astray. He concludes the book by reminding Timothy, it's your job now, buddy, to guard the trust and watch out for the false teachers, those who would lead others astray, that irreverent, senseless babble of nonsense far from the central message of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in the similar way that he began, of grace and truth and peace, grace be with you. 
It's interesting to note that in the Greek grammar, the word you, the pronoun you, is in the plural. It includes the entire church. So as Paul's final words, as he says, grace to you, it's not only to Timothy, but it's to the whole church that God's blessing would be upon them. God's undeserved, unmerited favor would be upon them. Grace to you. Grace to you. I want to make three rather brief observations about the closing passage here. And then I want us to to summarize what we've gotten out of this book today, I hope in a very practical manner that will be helpful to you. Three observations about Paul's closing remarks that are notable. Number one, I want you to see that Timothy is tasked with a serious responsibility. Timothy is tasked by the Apostle Paul with a serious responsibility. Okay, Timothy, I'm getting out of the plane. You're in the left-hand seat. Now it's up to you to guard that to which you've been entrusted. The NIV says that which you've been entrusted. The NAS says that. The ESV that we're using, guard the deposit entrusted to you. This is similar to the words in verse 14 right away in his final letter, 2 Timothy verse 14. Let your eyes go across the page to 2 Timothy verse 2 Timothy 1:14. 2 Timothy 1:14. And he reminds Timothy here as he begins this final letter to him, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul wants Timothy to know that it's his job as the pastor to guard the summarizing truths that he's been presenting to him in all six chapters. Here's the image you want to have. Remember in the Wild Wild West shows and the stagecoach and the horses and the guys up there running the stagecoach? Who's sitting on the seat beside him? The shotgun. Timothy, you're riding shotgun for God's church. Guard the gold. Don't let any of the bandits get it. And he's throughout the whole book, he has been warning him of the bandits that will come in and permeate the ministry. The wolves in sheep clothing. It's a serious responsibility, isn't it? To say that God has given me the trust of this church. God has given these elders the trust of this church. God has given us as a church the trust of his word. Don't mess it up. Don't make it something that it's not. A lot of people in our world today are abusing that trust. And they're damaging the name of Christ in the churches. Timothy, you have a serious responsibility. Guard the trust. Keep the bandits at bay. The second thing I want you to see that in doing this, in guarding this trust, it falls upon Timothy, number two, that it's his job to define reality. It's his job to define reality. Timothy, you're piloting the plane now. Timothy, you're at the controls. It is up to you to decide whether you're too high, too low, too fast, too slow. Look what he says. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. That's a serious responsibility. Now you have to define reality. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There are people in your ministry that will want to talk about things that you will have to say to them, no, we're not going to talk about that here. No, we're not going to deal with, no, that's not our message here. No, we're off topic. Who has to define reality? The guy in the left-hand seat. 
He's the one at the controls. Pastor Timothy is over the... Do you think it's an easy thing to go up to somebody and say, you know, um, you need to step down from teaching right now. Now, we try to have a filter up front, a sieve through which people have to pass before they get to teach so that we don't have to go to somebody and say, you know what, we need to avoid this kind of teaching. Don't be, don't be talking about that stuff around here. One of the things that Timothy had brought up before was the health and wealth gospel, wasn't it? It was that, that they wanted to be rich, and if you were walking with God, you'd be rich. Another one of the false gospels that had been presented that he had challenged in chapter 1 was a return to legalism, and they had evidently had some kind of a grocery list. And if you do this, you're spiritual, and if you don't do this, you're not. And if you do this, you'll get to heaven. And it didn't really have anything to do with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, you have to define reality at your church, and you have to make sure. That none of that nonsense or babble or false teaching goes on. It's an important trust. It's an important responsibility. It's important for him to define reality so that he knows what to avoid and what to introduce. And then finally, the third observation is that he is to keep his flock from spiritual fatality. He is to keep his flock from spiritual fatality. Verse 21, For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. He uses the word shipwreck at times in his teaching, Paul does. The idea is that you've gotten off course, you have swerved, you're now hitting the guardrail, or you're running in the ditch, or you've hit the rocks in the bay. You are somewhere you're not supposed to be. And it's fatal to the church. People have abandoned the faith because the trust was not guarded. Well, there it is. That's the completion of our text. Grace be to you. May God pour out his blessing upon you, church. Timothy, guard the trust. It's a serious responsibility. Timothy, pay attention to what's going on in the left-hand seat. You have to define reality. Don't run into the mountains. Number three, keep your flock from wandering after false teachers. It's fatal. There's our book. I believe it was um, November 9th, 2010, that we started into 1 Timothy. And now we're going to shut it and we're going to walk out of here in about 15, 17, 25 minutes from now. And um, yeah, that was a joke. So what do we do with 1 Timothy now? What do we get out of 1 Timothy? How is it useful to us? And it occurs to me that in Paul's closing words, the, the observations we made, it all is about this deposit to which Tim has been in, Timothy has been entrusted. This resource. The Apostle Paul has been instructing Timothy about his church about how they're to live and how they're to function. And so I want to click off with um, some uh, uh, movement here without, uh, without bogging down. I want to click off what we've gotten from this book or what can be helpful to us is actually five markers, five markers of, of defining our church as a healthy church. And here's how I want to do it. The other day I got a phone call from a, a young couple in our church. And uh, 
They've been coming a long time, and the guy said to me, Pastor Van, you need to be expecting a reference call. He told me the city where it would be coming from, the organization. He said, I've put in for a new job. It's very likely we're going to move. Ah, I hate to hear that. I'm glad I get a chance to be the reference. No, you don't want this guy. He's a slime ball. He needs to... Don't hire him. No, I don't do that. And one of the things we talked about in that conversation was... One of the, and it encouraged my heart, is that, Pastor Van, you need to know that one of the reasons we really hesitate with making this move is we hate to leave our church. Does your church mean that much to you? I hope so. It's one of the things we take for granted, kind of in our lives, like I've talked about rebar in the concrete. You don't pay attention to it, but if it's not there, the bottom falls out. Church is a little bit like rebar in our lives, I think needs to be there. It holds us strong. And when it's not there, the bottom can fall out. He said, I don't know if we can find a church in this new city that's like fellowship. And he probably won't. But what do you look for in a church? And what do you look for in this church? And what are the things that mark a church that you want to attend? Five defining markers of the church you want to attend. Five defining markers of the church you want this church to be from 1 Timothy in summarizing the, whole, the total message. So let's continue with our friend that attends our church that's moving soon. And let's go to their new city in our minds and let's get out of the car on a Sunday morning. Don't you hate that feeling? Going to a church for the first time. You walk in and you don't know what to expect and it's just a bad feeling. I hope it doesn't feel that bad coming in here for the first time. When I was a senior in high school, my dad resigned his pulpit and it was a very difficult season in our lives at our little Bible church. And, and so for the whole spring of my senior year of high school, every Sunday morning we trooped off somewhere within a 60 to 70 mile radius to all these different churches. Some of them where my dad's buddies were pastors and some where we were thinking about going and going to a new Sunday school class every week and walking in every week. What do you look for when you walk in that church? You're getting out of your car and you're walking in and I hope that as you watch your church, as you watch our church, and I hope that if the Lord ever has to take you somewhere else, that because we've been in 1 Timothy, you will know what to watch for in a church. The first marker of the church you want to attend is its message. Its message. Let's turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to go quickly. We're not going to bog down. I just want to make it practical as we conclude. Notice right away, as Timothy ended, I referenced that as he began the book, 1 Timothy 1.3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may what? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. That's what he called meaningless babble in his final words. But notice his phrase there, that you may charge these people not to teach any different doctrine. And so right away we learn as we enter this pastoral epistle about the church, that what Paul is concerned about is the message of the church. What kind of doctrine are they teaching? What's their message? So two questions to help us figure it out. Number one, is the word of God 
being clearly explained. As we walk into our new church and we're checking it out, number one marker on our list is going to be the message. What's the message? First question we ask ourselves about the message is, is the word of God being preached? How many of you have ever sat in a message? I have listened online to numerous messages like this, and I've listened to myself preach some messages like this. Um, You're sitting there, you have your Bible open, and you can't make heads or tails out of what that guy up front's talking about. What in the world is this message about? I mean, he might be all over the platform and he might have good vocal inflection, but you can't see what in the world he's talking about. And sometimes you're even in a church and they never say, open the Bible. And then you're they're there and you're like, what's going on here? And I would say that as you enter your new church, it's going to take you four to six weeks. It's going to take you four to six weeks to be able to define these five markers and whether they're present or not. You've got to give the pastor at least one break for a bad message now and then. And here it's about once a month. Just cut the guy some slack, would you? But what you want to ask yourself with the message is, is the message deriving itself from the life of Christ, from the teaching of the apostles, from our Old Testament, are the scriptures being explained? That's what Paul was talking about to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. Don't let anybody teach anything that's not in the word of God. Don't let anybody teach anything that's a different doctrine. Is the message being guarded? Are you receiving a message from the Word of God? And if you go another week and another week and another week, and the Bible's not being taught, let me give you a clue. It's not your church. It's not the church for you. Oh, but they got the best coffee pots. (laughs) They got the best praise band every Sunday morning. Good for them. If the message is not based upon sound doctrine of the Word of God, then leave. Save yourself grief. What good is it? A club? A coffee club? A music club? We're not here for anything more than the message, really. That's where it all starts and ends. It's the message. The second thing you need to see is, like, look at verse 15 of chapter 1. This is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance, Timothy. Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the foremost sinner, Paul says. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The second question you want to ask yourself under the message, what is the message of this church? Question number one, is the truth of God's word being preached? Question number two, is the gospel of Jesus Christ being unashamedly presented? Is it focused on Christ? Is the gospel of Christ? Is the cross being lifted up? Is the substitutionary death of Christ being presented in an understandable manner that you have a need and that need was only met through God and his love for for us and he sent Jesus to go to the cross in our place so that we could go, repent of our sin before him, admit our sinfulness and receive the righteousness of Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. And that's the centrality of the gospel that Jesus Christ came, was crucified, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures for our salvation. And if the message isn't being founded on the scriptures, and if Christ is not being clearly presented as our only hope, and the gospel is not making sense, that's not your church. And we got that out of 1 Timothy. I hope you got that out of 1 Timothy. It's 
all about the message. The second marker, the second defining marker, is the church's methods. The church's methods. And this is very simple. And this is a little bit of an argument from silence. One of the things I'm looking for in the pastoral epistles is Paul to instruct pastors like Timothy and Titus on how to do church. Everybody wants to know how you do in church. Should we set our pew? Should we have pews? Should we have chairs? Should we have one, two, three, four, five aisles? Or should we have one aisle or two aisles? You know, should we use a hymnal? Should we use screen? Should we have a band? Should we have violins? How do we do church? Silent. I take it he doesn't care too much about all that. I take it that there can be a variety in churches about whether they use pairs, chairs, or pairs, or whatever, or pews. <laughs> it's silent. But when it comes to methods, the closest thing I can find is chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, and he reminded us, that first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He said... My first line of agenda to you is that in your church, you be defined as a praying church. And so as we get out of our car and we walk into our new church and we're looking for the defining markers of a good church based upon Paul's instruction to Timothy. First of all, the message is the word of God being preached or is there other doctrine? Is it the voice of a man or is it the voice of God? Is the gospel central? Is Jesus Christ being lifted up in the cross? But then their methods, what are they doing? And That's where there's just a whole variety of things. And maybe methods isn't even the best word, but there's at least two things that Paul says ought to be going on in the church. Number one is praying. I have to tell you, I'm concerned about this at Fellowship Bible Church. I'm not sure that you could attend here for four to six weeks and define us as a praying church. We pray. I'm convicted about that. I sense that conviction in the elders right now. That needs looked at. That needs some revival in the area of praying. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, Timothy, first of all, make sure you're praying. The second thing he instructed is in chapter 4, verse 12, as far as a method that you would, something going on, an activity in the church is what I mean by method. Verse 12, uh, chapter 4, that's where he says, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young. Set an example. Verse 13 of chapter 4, until I come, Timothy, Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. That has to do with the message, but it also has to do with the method, doesn't it? Let me read it again, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourselves. So in chapter 2, he said, first of all, first importance, pray. Later, he gets to the point where he says, until I come, devote yourself to this. Devote yourself to the preaching Exhortation, teaching, public reading of the scriptures. So the second thing you ought to ask yourself, is this a praying church and is this a preaching church? Listen, I'll tell you something. You can say this is my opinion if you want, but I think it's based on these markers that Paul is giving Timothy. If you go to a new church and they have 50 minutes of music and 20 minutes of preaching, you haven't found your church. You haven't found your church. I'm not against music. I'm all for it, for worship. It's great. It's all good. All varieties. Find a place that works for you. But if there's more music than preaching, Paul said to Timothy, 
Devote yourself to the music ministry of the church. He didn't say that. He said, devote yourself to exhortation, to preaching, and the public reading of the word. That's why at the center of our worship service is the pulpit. It's the place where the word of God is preached. And so you go into your new church and you say, okay, I'm looking for the message. It's got to be the true word of God. It's got to be centered on Christ. I'm looking for their methods. What are they doing? And in the DNA of the church, it needs to be a praying church and a preaching church. That will define a lot about their methods. The third thing I want you to see as a defining marker for your new church is its model. Its model, and by this I mean the model of leadership. This is chapter 3, and we spent so many weeks in chapter 3. I'm almost embarrassed to turn us back there again. I'm really not, but... Do, here's your question. Does this church have qualified elders leading it? It's one of the most important questions you can ask about your new church. It's one of the most important questions you can ask about this church. Do we have qualified, godly, spiritual, and I'm going to add another word, male elders leading the church? It's what he defines in chapter 3, and we, we beat that around all last summer. What's the model of leadership? You walk into your new church, and if it's a pastor-led church, I'm not saying you have to leave it, but I'm saying you had better be careful. Who's in charge around here? The pastor. Who are the board members? Who are the elders? Oh, we don't have elders. It's just the pastor, and then there's some trustees. Yellow flag, yellow flag, yellow flag. It's not in the book. It's not in the book. What's in the book is a plurality of godly, qualified, spiritual leaders Are there qualified elders? Are there qualified deacons? You might say this. Watch the men of your new church. Watch the men of this church. Are the men leading the church or is it a female-led church? If it's a female-led church, unless God called you there to make a difference, it's probably not your church. That is not a sexist statement. That is a biblical statement. Watch the men of the church. Are they growing spiritually? Are they leading? Are they elders? Are they deacons? Are they leading the way? Our fourth marker is its members. And just flip to chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, very quickly. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, Timothy. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And he goes on and then gives detailed instruction about the care of widows and the elderly and the weak, how to select elders. Look around at the members of the church, number four marker. And what I get out of this is that it's a church that is caring for the total body of Christ. Old men, young men, old women, young women. What is the demographic of the church? Somebody told me just the other day, said, Pastor Van, when I came into the church... One of the things that I was so impressed with at Fellowship is that there was no defining age bracket. I really like that about our church. We didn't do that on purpose. But if you go to a church that is ministering to a defined demographic, and if you're not in this 10-year or 15-year bracket, you kind of feel like there's really not much here for me. You're probably right. It's not your church. The body of Christ is zero to, to the grave. The body of Christ is families worshiping together. The body of Christ is the old men teaching the young men, the older women teaching the younger women, taking care of the widows, taking care of the weak, taking care of the sick. 
Watch the membership. Do they love each other? Do they like to be together? Are they taking care of one another? Our fifth marker is it's money. It's money. What is the church doing with its money? What about the people who have money in the church? I was talking to a guy a while back and he said, Pastor Van, I've been at this church and there's one guy that runs the church. He's the richest man in town. One time he looked at his pastor and his pastor was talking and interrupted and he said to the pastor, sit down. And the pastor sat down. In a disrespectful manner, he said it. And nobody would do anything and nobody could mess with him because he was the money man. Who's got the money? What are the wealthy doing in your church? Do the wealthy rule your church? Do you know what? You should not be able to pick out who the wealthy people are in the church. And if you walk in and there's some kind of a tiered system in a church and the money people, they in the, eh, eh, just leave, just leave. Because Paul gave specific instruction for almost a whole chapter on people who love money and how they're not qualified for spiritual leadership. And he gave a specific instruction about how they're to be generous. Is it a generous church? Is it a church that supports missionaries? What are they doing with their money? So there you go. Um, you've been through First Timothy for two years. And I hope that at least you will watch our church closely now. You be hawks. You really be watching our church. And if you get a phone call or if I get a phone call from you and you have to move to a new city and I give you a good enough reference and they take you at your new job and you walk into your new church, you know that the first thing you're going to look at is the message. What's the message? What are the methods around here? Is it a praying church and is it a preaching church? Do they have a pulpit or do they just have a bare platform? What about the model of leadership? Is it a male-led church with elders and deacons who are godly and leading their families and leading the church? Raising the whole thing up. What about its member care? Are the members loving one another? Is there a demographic that's definable or is it the whole body of Christ represented? What about their money? Are they managing their money well and are they a generous church? Are they meeting the needs of those without. I think those are pretty good markers, don't you? I find that pretty helpful, and, and I really believe that all of that is what we've been studying. That kind of summarizes what Paul has been telling Timothy. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for this instruction from Paul to Timothy that has been preserved through the ages. And under the scrutiny of your Holy Spirit, it was placed in just the right spot in our Bible. And it's so timely and helpful to us. And would you help us as a church body to keep an eye on ourselves? Would you help us to guard the trust? Help us to guard our doctrine and our lives closely. Help us to, to be the kind of model for a church that you can use and that's functional and is biblical. And Father, help us to be non-negotiable in these things. Help us not to waver, to not be embarrassed for our church, to be embarrassed for our Bibles, to be embarrassed of Jesus. But help us to lift all of that up. And for Fellowship Bible Church to be all about all of that. For our young family that's moving away, Lord, would you bless them? Would you help them find just a great church with a great sanctifying pastor?
that preaches your word in a loving body with elders and deacons. Father, help us to build our homes on the firm foundation of your word and a good church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.